it is Marx's theory of alienation. It's just developed. Marx and then Lukács and then Debor, they develop a theory of alienation. Um, and if you go back to just Marx for your theory of alienation, you, you'll notice that a whole lot of what you know and think isn't in there. And the reason why this doesn't seem particularly groundbreaking to you is because it's so thoroughly filtered into your thought. Because the, uh, the, the situationist critique of, of the society that you live in has been so thoroughly filtered in through politics with just out like the recognition that it's that it probably should be accorded. Bonjour and welcome to the regrettable century. Actually learned that whole thing in French, but couldn't bring myself to say it. <laughs> I'm proud of you for not not following through on that one. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. This week we are discussing the Society of the Spectacle. And uh, it is an incredibly dense work for how short the book is. And it has had a wide-ranging influence from the student occupations and general strike in France in 1968... To the punk rock anarcho lifestylists and anarcho primitivists of the late 90s and early 2000s, and maybe a couple of disaffected former Trotskyists. Okay, so I think what I'd like to do to get started is give a background of the Situationist International and try to explain where it came from, put it in, put it in its context. In 1956, Guy Debord and a group of leftist artists formed the Situationist International, which was initially an art collective at an art conference in Italy. Uh, the new group was a fusion of a bunch of tiny art collectives, such as the La Triste International. Is that how you say it? The La Triste International, the International Movement for the Imaginist Bauhaus, hmm. and the London Psychogeographical Association which sounds like it might have been the largest collection of insufferable dilettantes in history. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly But it what turns out they wound up having some good ideas. Okay, so just because someone is an insufferable dilettante does not mean that they are a bad revolutionary, okay? Yeah, um, I agree with that. There were some other small Thankfully. art collectives that affiliated with the SI over the next few years when it was primarily just a loose affiliation of art collectives with a political bent. But in the early 1960s, the SI took a decidedly more political turn. Uh, the two primary leaders of the SI were Guy Debord and uh, Raoul Van Eigem. Is he Dutch? Van Eigem? Actually, he's Belgian. Yeah, it's it's Debord with no D, but whatever, Debord and Van Eigem. Both of whom were primarily concerned with political theory. And they helped shift the intellectual focus of the SI into the realm of Marxist critical theory. And in turn, the SI became super popular and influential within the French university circles and was essentially the theoretical foundation for the student uprising in uh, May of 1968. Okay, so what was going on in France that caused Guy Debord to, 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 uh, to write this since World War II, France had seen had seen rapid economic growth and was, as it usually happens, highly unequal as a result. Uh, French workers worked an average of 50 hours a week, which was the most in Western Europe. 
They were the lowest paid of Western European countries and had the highest tax burden. There was 30% youth unemployment, and large numbers of these youths were college educated. So the president of France was Charles de Gaulle, who was the hero of the, the World War II French resistance, who served a few years after World War II and then came back when France was in crisis to lead an authoritarian soft coup that put him in power. Uh, to give you an idea of how conservative the regime was, it wasn't until 1965 that women were actually allowed to legally work without their husband's permission. France mm -hmm. was highly had a highly centralized and conservative political system, sort of semi-military, pseudo-democratic. The regime directed production, price, wages, trade, investment, and controlled a large number of state-owned businesses. Uh, de Gaulle didn't like shunt aside private capitalist interests. He actually worked hand-in-hand -hand with them to determine financial and industrial um, quotas. And, and while the Communist Party and organized labor stood in opposition, they were actually dealt a huge blow by the um, secret speech that Khrushchev released, which exposed the crimes of Stalinism. So organized labor and the Communist Party had been entering a crisis of legitimacy at the same time that the, there was an economic downturn in France. De Gaulle, although he spent his entire life fighting against the far right, saw his true enemy as the radical left. Mm -hmm. So this is the situation into which the situationists enter. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the context that you've sort of laid out is probably the, the well, let's say it's the first thing, maybe the most important thing for making sense of the, the things which uh, Dubois and the Situationists are writing about and what they're doing. Because ripped from the context, it, 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 I think it strikes some people as a little bit bizarre. Um, a lot of the things that the Situationists are regarding as like political practice, mm -hmm. um, like uh, Detournement, where they... They take uh, like existing artwork and then like repurpose it um, against its own intentions, or like uh, the derive or the psychogeography, where they like wander through the city just to contemplate um, the way in which the urban landscape pu pushes and pulls you. It doesn't immediately strike you as um, political, um, and yet for them, like these things are are, are critical pieces of constructing situations uh, or like stepping into uh, moments of authenticity uh, of, of authentic experience um, at a time whenever life is like stultifying bureaucratic and deeply conservative and so is the resistance to that society uh, in the form of like super socially conservative and timid communist party and trade unions who have a uh, you know, even though these are like movements, uh, like the workers' movement le leads the resistance to Nazi Germany by the by the late fifties, um, they don't appear to have any revolutionary content left. So these right, people... and they took a really really soft stance on the uh, the war in Algeria for the for the the French government to retain control of their last colony. Right. There's even um, there's even a moment where uh, de Gaulle goes on the television to say. Even the communists don't support Algerian independence. So, like, that's a that's a hell of a time to be trying to figure out how to 
you know, resist capitalism whenever the communists are, you know, not resisting capitalism. So some of the some of the bizarre things or seemingly bizarre things to us, they, I think they make sense in a certain context. But I also don't think that this just like experimentation on the margins by people who are like not particularly suited to like regimented Communist Party life. I think that this is actually fairly clever stuff that they're dealing with. The way that they, um, the assessment of society and the way that it has changed in the post-war era um, that I guess we should probably try to get into a little bit. So I, I definitely think that the idea of détourment, détourment, all right, probably was super innovative in uh, <laughs> the 1960s, but like just spray painting sucks, you know, <laughs> on Donald Trump's face or, <laughs> or I, I guess the whole concept of ad busters is, is based on this, you know? Yeah. Um, it, which is an incredibly watered down uh, recuperation of the concept of detourment, which, you know, I guess we could probably get into a little bit later when we talk about recuperation. Well, like I would say that Adbusters is a really good example of like trying to apply like a piece of situationist, uh, whatever thought or practice, but not, but like divorcing it from its, uh, let's say loosing it from its moorings in Marxism, in proletarian revolution. Um, like similar to, the people who have tried to talk to you about this stuff in, in, in years past have talked about it like don't watch football or whatever, like as if the critique of spectacle is about like you are watching television or something. Um, again, that's like this mis this misappropriation of this like holistic critique of developments in capitalist society in in terms of like the obstacles to proletarian revolt being thrown up by a, a much more sophisticated uh, mechanisms of repression um, but divorcing that analysis and just saying like this particular piece of it I kind of like but I don't like it as it relates to, to Marxism which means which is to say I don't like it as it is actually uh, intended to be what what's funny is that it's maybe like two-thirds of the way into the society of the spectacle um, when divorce giving a kind of treatment of the the various tendencies uh, the revolutionary tendencies in the workers movement and uh, he's got some favorable and some and some not so favorable things to say about anarchism. But when he refers to anarchism in its lifestyle variant, in its individualist lifestyle variant, he says something to the effect of like, uh, its claims to revolutionary theory are laughable. And that's all he has to say. It's just like, it's this not worth even discussing. Right. And um, my introduction to the Society of the Spectacle in the past, when I was part of the sort of third camp Trotsky has left was look, here's a book about how to be a lifestylist and why Leninism and Trotskyism are bad. So, you know, don't pay much attention to it. Uh, it's really silly, even though it had like a kind of a cool little flare up in the sixties. So that was all the attention I paid to it until I saw this article in red wedge magazine that was written by you, Jason, uh, I guess uh, over about a year ago, um, uh, which, yeah, about a year ago which made me want to re-engage with the subject matter. So what I would like to do right now is to get our discussion really going is talk about the thesis, the key thesis of the society, of the spectacle. So I'm going to pose this question to our resident, um, uh, situationist who would be Jason, Jason, what is the thesis of the society of the spectacle and why is it not 
we live in the matrix and resistance is futile. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay, so the very quick thesis of the Society of the Spectacle is that the rigid separation um, in at the time when when divorce writing is uh, that exists in both camps in the Cold War, uh, the specialization of class society and the reduction of, of the uh, the vast majority of proletarians to the role of passive spectators is a is a is a necessary element for capitalism's sort of uh, continued survival and and and, and growth that uh, like in the era of proletarian revolution, right? So he's talking about like from the time of the end of the First World War, Russia 1917, and on the wave of revolution that comes after that and also after the Second World War, that um, it's no longer enough for class society to just ruthlessly stamp out um, proletarian subjectivity, right? Because this is a class which has awakened to its potential, its world historic mission. So um, more sophisticated means of repression are necessary. And uh, in the East, in the, in, the, in the Cold War, it's the like, um, you know, re- refers to the kind of the cult of the leader, the cult of the state, and the kind of the myth-making about the proletarian state, even as the proletarian content has been like completely uh, shredded and everyone knows it. And in the West, in the, in the, in the bourgeois capitalist West, as opposed to the the um, bureaucratic state capitalist East. Um, it's a similar kind of myth, myth making about choice and about freedom um, and the kind of cult of abundance. But in both cases, uh, producers, uh, that is workers, right? As producers are also, they play a dual role now of being uh, pacified by the kind of cult of consumption, whether it's um, ideology, uh, or products, which is which in themselves have a kind of ideological content, and I think that's important because uh, the distinction between the, the like you're in the matrix, man, like you know you got to snap out of this kind of false reality, uh, and uh, and what Devor's talking about is that like the role of spectator is uh, is one in which a person can can step out of very consciously, very deliberately. Whereas like the matrix is like a false reality that's imposed over you and you can't even really perceive it. Like when Baudrillard's talking about like uh, simulacrum. Hypernormalization and capitalist realism, not simulacra. Yeah. I mean, it's like spectacle is about um, intentionally and consciously tamping down the expectations of a class which has awakened to its potential. Um, right. And, you know, later in life, when he writes uh, comments on the Society of the Spectacle, it takes a markedly different turn as the whole revolutionary uh, wave of the of the 60s is kind of like it's over. You know, there's a much less optimistic yeah. uh, and I think much more conspiratorial and like conspiracy theory laden uh, tone to his later writing, although it's still, I think, pretty useful. I read that today. And that's, that's exactly what I thought, too, was that um, it helped sort of if you keep the Society of the Spectacle in mind as you read it. It helps sort of update it a little bit, but it also he gets a lot more conspiratorial. Totally. Oh, but I just I just wanted to clarify a point that when you said the state capitalist East, you're using DeBoer's words, right? Yeah, I mean he's talking about uh, he calls it he talks about the worldwide division of spectacular tasks, and uh, he refers to 
all of societies um, in the present moment existing on a bureaucratic bourgeois spectrum. So that yeah. there are like societies which are, are, are more uh, representative of the concentrated spectacle of like the totalitarianism of backward economies um, mm-hmm. of state capitalism. And, it, and he does use that term. Um, but also right. the diffuse spectacle. Which I, is, state capitalism is not necessarily our term. Right, right. Um, and then the, the diffuse spectacle, which is the totalitarianism of, you know, commodity abundance, leisure time, um, commodified leisure time. Um, but like that's a that's a common theme is that it's it's about the, the rule of the commodity form or instead of the rule of people. Right. Right. So, you know, he's is Devor's often referred to by um, more thoughtful commentators as like a, a left communist. You know, and he, right. and he makes like references to Panikok and people who are uh, very hostile to Lenin and Bolshevism. Um, so, I think the key contribution of Debord to Marxist thought is his um, elaboration on commodity fetishism, um, and in anthropology, fetishism is used to explain the giving of supernatural or um, greater than is visibly apparent powers to a mundane item, right? Yeah. So Marx uses it to talk about the value that is added to a commodity for no other reason than that is what it will exchange for. And because it is accepted that it will exchange for that value and that becomes a new reality. Right. That's commodity fetishism. So how do Devore's ideas of commodity fetishism differ from Marx's? And why is that so important for understanding the spectacle? Um, so I don't, I don't think that they so much differ as that they, um, they really tried to develop them, you know, like, right. uh, like they, it, he elaborates on it to account for the idea that workers both produce and consume commodities so that they no longer are able to draw a clean line between the time spent producing commodities and the time spent consuming commodities that there is no separation of work and life right i mean he talks about like the the colonization by the commodity over every sphere of human activity um right uh is he actually talks about commodity fetishism being universalized so that uh, okay. every single aspect of human life is completely alienated and totally reified through the the rule of the commodity. Okay, so to me, like the idea that everything is packaged as a commodity and sold back to the worker um, from the things that the worker creates that he or she needs to be able to needs to consume in order to live. Um, to um, time, to uh... right, like so, like the commodity form in the era of what we call late capitalism, um, or in the era of what they're calling the spectacle, um, or the spectacular rule of the commodity form, which is the like, alternate title for the book. Uh-huh. But it's uh, is that like the time that you that was your your free time, your leisure time, that that's also all been commodified as well, you know, so that there is no time that is, there's no element of human life, which is, which is like outside of the rule of the commodity. And if you think about like 
going on vacation or uh, taking the kids to the arcade or like putting on a headset and playing um, whatever it is that people play now, Fallout, Call of Duty. Fortnite, that's the what people play now. The the That's a really easy way, I think, of explaining at least an element of it, which is just like the play has commodified. Like work is, uh, is a sphere of, of exploitation, but then so is every other aspect of life outside of work, whether it's transportation or leisure or, or even adventure, right? Because even like, even the idea of like stepping entirely out of the, the norms and the rhythms of your life, that's also been commodified, like vacation packages and... Uh... So I didn't realize that I was being a situationist whenever I booked a, a small hostel in, you know, a random Eastern European city and then just spent all of my time wandering around the city. Right. Like, it's, it's a really funny thing because it doesn't, it doesn't strike yeah. you as an inherently political act or whatever um and by itself it's not but that whole that whole concept is like about uh like at the level of the individual about like sort of you know kind of reminding oneself that you can that there is authentic experience in life which is not you know that that you know sort of being able to re-raise one's own horizons uh, in order to imagine the future, right? To borrow from a conversation that you had with Alex about um, the role of like the popular avant-garde, um, right? But it's not in you know we have to continually, I think, like resituate this in uh, the politics of proletarian revolution, which is like the ultimate situation for the situationist is the general strike, it's the workers' council, it's the revolt. Uh, that these are moments of authenticity uh, experienced on a mass scale. So, like, I think, like, historically, this this movement of kind of a like avant-garde weirdos, they 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 kind of shift in the early '60s uh, from the wandering of the street and you know pranks and and the kind of like seemingly sort of like playful things that they did as like small group of friends and they they shift over to political agitation and i think um you know it finds its highest expression in the may revolt in 68 and then in the the what they call the hot autumn in northern italy in 69 like i really think that they were grasping towards something but uh you know it, it was a politics for a moment that a lot of people say it was passed, but I think that at least in terms of analysis, it still has a relevance today. So what relevance does it have? Why should we read the Society of the Spectacle with fresh eyes? Situationism, if there's a, such a thing, is it, uh, it's, it was never meant to kind of like be a new political doctrine, but it's supposed to be like an experimental attitude. Um, like if the, if the idea, um, if we can accept the idea that, that, that life under capitalism um, in whatever form, is like so profoundly alienated that we um, we tend to sort of adopt and and repurpose alienated form even in our own lives, right? Like in in even in our political lives, like our our political organizations seem to mirror the the construction of capitalist society in terms of like uh, the kind of rigid hierarchies and the separation of special specializations or whatever. Or let's say uh, what I would say is that an experimental attitude about politics is 
necessary for the recomposition of a revolutionary left in an era where we're probably more dominated by a spectacular society than we were in the 1960s, right? Because Oh, absolutely. At the time, in the 60s and 70s, you know, cultural rebellion was still a conceivable phenomenon, whereas uh, basically ever since the 1980s, uh, really ever since the 70s, um, the society has figured out how to recuperate rebellion as as a as commodity right so now it's the easiest thing in the world to go and like buy a kind of prepackaged aesthetic of rebellion and it's sponsored by monster energy drink or whatever like i was talking talking to alex about rage against the machine right or i i I referred to uh recuperation as the the rage against the machinization of dissent which could be you could talk about the you know public enemy in the same way you know Look at Public Enemy and then look at um, Flava Flav's dating show or whatever, you know? Yeah, look at how Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols is like a Trump supporter. Um, Right. Or, you know, how hip-hop, which is, you know, initially an expression of dissent and of the brutality of being black in America and who's probably one of its most famous and most recognizable and loudest voices is, you know, a Trump supporter or was, you know, in Kanye West. Um, but also, you know, Nicki Minaj supported, um, Romney and, uh, you know, it's just like the, the idea that there's such a thing as a, uh, a medium that can stay revolutionary once it's been put out into capitalism is it, that, that just, it's not possible. Uh, neoliberalism is incredibly good at recuperating and commodifying expressions of dissent. Yeah, like if you could imagine a scenario nowadays where uh, like a multimillionaire um, like media mogul who happens to also like own non-media companies, right? Like a capitalist can uh, dress up their dancers like Black Panthers and perform during the Super Bowl. And people could say like, look at this like radical act. Look at this defiant act of like cultural expression. And, uh, you know, it might have an element of that that's kind of like inspiring because it's you know it reminds us of a thing which uh it harkens back to a a a kind of an echo of rebellion but it's a it's a pale echo at best right so you know we we live in the society of the spectacle like late capitalism um has this profoundly powerful tool in being able to completely defang uh it's the methods of resistance against it and uh, and sell it back to commodify it and sell it back to us. That's interesting that you used Johnny Rotten when the Sex Pistols were really inspired by situationism. You know, and Johnny Rotten was is one of the best figures ever for uh, um, illustrating what recuperation is. Rotten had that particular criticism of punk in the early '80s when he had given up on it. You know, when he's yeah. His, you know, his new musical outfit, Public Image Limited, is trying constantly to experiment with form. Um, he basically tries to be an artistic rebel, like a situationist without without a proletarian movement. Um, right. But he talks about, like, you know, for just a moment, punk was this, like, ethic of total rebellion, this rejection of a totally ordered bureaucratic society. Um, it kind of like this, uh, this old, the May 68 slogan, which is a situationist slogan. Um, that we want nothing to do with a world where the guarantee of not starving to death comes with it um, the risk of dying of boredom 
you know. And so, but then all the record companies they figured out like, oh, all you have to do is, you know, market a leather jacket aesthetic and a spiky hair aesthetic, and every every single young person who wants to be fashionable is going to go buy that now instead of a instead of a turtleneck, uh, or you know, instead of a fringe jacket and long hair. And he says it's the punks that ruined punk because they forgot or, that the whole point was to be yourself, not to like buy something. Or, or the uh, you know, last last time I went by a, a hot topic I had like a pair of Converse that were covered in little circle A's. Uh, right. Like, you, know, you think about the like, uh, like the eleven year old totally commodified Adam, but yeah. exactly. But, but uh, I, I I don't know if I entirely follow this antipathy between experimentation and spectacle. Like how how is even in the in the the way that Debord is uh, conceiving of this this society of the spectacle? How is he? How is experimentation counterposed as as a, a proper response or a cure or or, or maybe not even a cure, but just like in any way antithetical to a, a society of spectacle? Um. Well, so like. I think the, the the first thing about that is that like it's it, we probably should recognize we have to recognize that uh the solution to spectacular society you know the solution to capitalism is still revolution it's still the proletarian seizure of power and the abolition of class distinctions and the withering of the state and the ushering in of the era of what you know what, what we call communism like to the situation is that's still the the cure that's still the response the argument about like detournement and like artistic experimentation in trying to like craft a new aesthetic for the movement is about trying to like loose the proletarian movement from its uh the stranglehold that like bureaucratic uh alienated forms of organization had on the workers movement at the time and i would argue that, that they still have um yeah this sort of stale repetitious uh, nostalgic aesthetic, uh, which inspires nobody except for the, the the initiates, who are fewer and fewer every year. Right? When you think about um, <laughs> there, there's the kind of person on the left that has a uh, this romance with like Cold War era, like space race imagery, and like that's their kind of like this is the this is the art of revolution. And it's, it doesn't speak to people in the way that it might have at the time, right? And the situs were all uh, first and foremost before they really even like fully appreciated proletarian revolution. They were art. They were artists. So they were like trying to be the Dadaists or the surrealists of their time by like seeking out a new aesthetic. And they they sort of said like art is dead. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna conceive of a new aesthetic. What we're gonna do is like take the since since the world is so saturated with imagery, I'm just gonna take all of the imagery of, of 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 the moment and just like repurpose it. Like I'm not I I'm not entirely convinced that that's like a a perpetual strategy, right? But that's a moment in which that um yeah that's that's not what I find useful useful about situ the situationists. Um, however, the memification of aesthetics. Is uh, in the present moment is a is it is a very it harkens back to the concept of the tournament like quite a bit right and you can see recuperation already beginning in the uh, way that 
companies are taking up memes yep. as methods of advertisement. Totally. Um, so, I mean, what I was what I was saying is that, like, I think that DeBoard's um, analysis of the way that capitalist society commodifies and sells back, you know, dissent and basically divorces us from meaningful expression and meaningful relationships is the useful part of his analysis, right? Um, you know, I mean, we talk about capitalist realism, like you and I, Jason, did that one episode that maybe we'll upload one day about Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism. And he is essentially just laying out in a new terminology what DeBoer did in the 60s. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that um, uh, Adam Curtis, when he um, he did his documentary film Hypernormalization, um, and he talks about the way in which like nobody really believes the official myth but everybody kind of like adopts it anyways. And it's like, you know, everybody talks about like, you ha you have to vote. This is the most important election of our lifetime, but then we'll simultaneously, you know, acknowledge that their vote has practically no actual weight at all. And it's not altogether different from like a Polish worker in the 1980s being happy to have May Day off from work and will march in the May Day parade, but like doesn't actually believe in like the bright socialist future, you know, like, so that you're you're sort of you did you hyper normalize the the thing which it's like a lie and we all know it's a lie but we act like it something we believe anyways and it gives it in a kind of uh, Joseph Goebbels sense like it's repeated often enough that it becomes the truth. It's not altogether different than uh, yeah it's not it's not different um, maybe it's different words but it's not but that much different of an analysis from what the uh, situationists are trying to grapple with. Yeah, and I think it's much more useful to understand things in those terms. Well, you know, the dominance of ideology, that the commodity form and its ideological component so thoroughly dominates us that even when we don't accept it and we don't believe in it, we don't agree with it, that it still, it it's still we still play out our lives as though we do, even in the way that we try to resist, mm -hmm. rather than to think of it as like you got the wool pulled over your eyes, man, and you got to snap out of the out of the lie. Because I think that that's like a that's right. a very useless way of understanding things, and a very superficial reading of of situation and slogans might might lead you to that conclusion. But like those slogans are also scrawled all over the walls of Paris and uh, you know and other French cities during the time of the of the sixty eight revolt, and it's because they were seen as agitational slogans by a population which was very much uh, you know in tune with their own subjectivity and not just students. Right. But also like the workers at Renault, um, the working class in general, like it was a general strike, not a student rebellion. Okay. Let's, let's just say that the way that most people who were familiar with situationism and the society of the spectacle the way that they internalized it was in a way that was at completely at odds with the with what DeBoard was trying to accomplish, right? So that the situationists had a, a had an influence on the anti-capitalist or the anti-globalization movement 
of the late 90s. And I think that it can probably best be seen in Pacific Northwest anarchist movement and with things like the Crime Think Ex-Workers Collective, right? Yeah. Where um, they take what DeBoer says about the spectacle, what, what, the, what they take from it is that you need to like shake yourself out of your stupor, man, and wake up and quit being a sheeple, you know? And that's pretty much where it ends. That's, that's as far as it goes. And I, and I think that whenever I was first exposed to the Society of the Spectacle, um, I was immediately turned off just by the people that introduced me to it, who were anarchists that were really into lifestyle politics and used the Society of the Spectacle as a justification to shame people into not liking sports and pop music and blockbuster movies and the like. Which is essentially uh, taking DeVore's analysis and using it as a method to make yourself feel better without actually having any kind of effect on the system whatsoever. Which is just exactly what the spectacle wants you to do <laughs> so the uh the spectacle of opposition right is most easily illustrated in our sort of fetishization of protest really um the milieu that we came out of is just one of the one that puts a heavy emphasis on performative out, displays of performative outrage, right? That you always, and I think we, we come back to this concept, I think at pretty much every episode. Um, yeah. And because it's something that's really affected all of us. And I think that um, the idea that you have to be constantly performing like a dance of outrage so that everyone can tell that you are unhappy and you don't like the way that things are going. Protest becomes a part of the spectacle when it becomes just something that we do in order to display, to create, you know, images of our discontent that then makes us feel better about how shitty everything is and about ourselves and makes us feel like we're doing something. So um, I've said this before, that activism is what I do so that I can sleep at night. And totally. that is what it ends, that's all it ends up being, right? Or activism is the rent you pay for living on planet Earth. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I don't talk about this a whole lot, but, uh, I sometimes keep a blog. It's called Say It With Paving Stones. And I was just looking at, um, a, a blog entry that I wrote, um, and it's called Some Notes on the Spectacle of Opposition. <clears throat> and I was, um. I, I was just going to read uh, this one thing that I wrote because I think that it, um, it it encapsulates this really well. It says that under the domination of the spectacle, all normal political activity, which is to say like all non-revolutionary activity, um, activity which is not consciously driving for popular subjectivity and deliberate steps uh, toward like revolution or like the great refusal is, uh, is worse than ineffective. It's activity which actually only assists in alleviating our guilt. Uh, and alleviating our sense of helplessness while allowing the operation of the machinery to continue unabated. That is spectacular. That is accepting the role of spectator in society so that you're registering to, you know, to, to, to go back to football 
you're excited about a thing, you're upset about a thing. You're not playing a, an active role in it. The difference would be like the yellow vests in France. Um, they're not, you know, maybe they maybe they started as a protest because I think all political activity starts as, a, as something like that. But they very quickly moved into direct confrontation with with actually established power, and and, and critically, the working class as such stepped onto the stage and wrested a concession. Um, mm-hmm. That's a that's that's participation as opposed to spectatorship. Um, so there's this May '68 slogan, which is a uh, which is a situationist slogan <laughs> that says, "To be free in 1968 is to participate." And I think that you know you could extrapolate that to basically any moment in which, like history is actually happening, and you can identify history as the uh, the result of your activity. Uh, so to be free in 1968 is to participate, because in '68. Uh, history was actually happening. Um, you could say something similar about like the way we felt during Occupy, or you know probably the way that the Russian worker felt in 1905 or 1917. Um, in those moments, authenticity is manifest, right? That's that's reality. That's that's real freedom. Um, that's subjectivity. That's participation. It's the opposite of being a spectator, which is what this is, what spectacular society reduces us to. Um, in normal times to be free in 2018 is to podcast (laughs) i think i think that when thinking about the society of the spectacle you should never think about it divorced from the idea that it is 100% 100% tied to the project of the revolutionary self-emancipation of the working class, right? Totally. So, and that's the thing, that's the problem. And I, I think that, you know, I probably, I think I said this earlier, that the, the problem is, is that anarchists and, you know, primitivist types have divorced the situationism from the Marxism and just tried to have authentic authentic experiences which is i think to me that's the least important part of this yeah but, sure i mean jason I, you look like I, you, you disagree i think uh so like i think that the the concept of authenticity as it is as as it relates to this question is bound up uh it's inextricably it has it's inextricably linked to the concept of subjectivity it's the the realization of uh you know, your capacity to make history flow from your actions, right? So, like, that is, like, the full realization of of your human self. You know, when you feel empowered. For us, it's a collective experience, right? That's what they mean when they're talking about authenticity. And I might overemphasize the use of the word authenticity because I'm also a big fan of uh, the existentialists who also talk a lot about authenticity. Uh, the situationists hated the existentialists. Did they? Debord hated... Yeah, it's... I feel because like the Debord had to have been very, very influenced by the existentialists. Of course, naturally, all of French politics in the on the left in the post-war era were heavily influenced by the situation. Uh, by the he existentialists, just, he just hated Sartre because Sartre was a Stalinist. I think he hated Sartre because he hadn't fully broken with Stalinism. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, like, but yeah, like to feel empowered as. To, to feel subjectivity, to feel a, 
a subject of history and not an object of history. Um, to feel like a participant in, in history instead of a spectator of history. That's what they would refer to as as authentic moment of existence. Um, and so like, as, as philosophers of proletarian revolution, you know, they would refer, they would, they would talk about revolution itself as like the ultimate experience, uh, the ultimate authentic experience of subjectivity. But in a time when there is no revolution happening, uh, they basically couldn't bear the thought of just being spectators, whether uh, as just average citizens in the Republic or even as communist party members who would turn out to a big meeting and hear the speeches from the from the specialists of pseudo revolution and they go okay we've done our part we marched in the demo we chanted the slogans which mean nothing to us they don't make us feel anything and we go home so even in a, even in a moment where there's no revolution happening they're like desperately seeking out situations right moments of authenticity moments of like temporary subjectivity just so that they can continue to feel or they can begin to feel like subjects, like like participants, rather than spectators and objects. So I would actually regard this as, as having a value. And just to take my own personal life, uh, it is it has been a regenerative, uh, in a way that sounds real new agey, regenerative practice to like to have stepped out of a, of an alienated, crusty, stultifying atmosphere on the left. And to be like experimenting, trying to figure out ways of feeling like, I don't know, alive. Situationism means that I never have to say a chant that is based on the idea that, hey, hey, ho, ho, something, something has got to go. Then I think that that means that's what I want to be. (laughs) Well, there you go. Whose streets? Our streets, especially because we filed a permit. (laughs) We filed a permit. So these are legally our streets for the next 45 minutes. Yeah, but don't walk too fast or we'll lose our police escort, right? It's That's the spectacle of opposition. Yeah. That's like, we don't believe in this society, but these are the rules, you know? And so for the situationist, I think the, uh, you know, there's a reason why this appeals so much to the people who want to like light a trash can on fire and throw it through a Starbucks window. And there's a reason why I have a certain degree of like sympathy for that. Because if the workers' movement is dominated by organizations with like just boring, useless, rote memorizations of dogma and of like repetitious behaviors, like as if you're going to like, you know, like a, a new version of, of the Catholic Church. Um, Once a week on Saturdays, we gather together and do a lead off, have a discussion <laughs> and then sell newspapers. Right, exactly. <laughs> and if if catechism's not your bag, man, then maybe, uh, maybe literally anything else that makes you feel momentarily free is more useful in at least retaining your capacity to be a revolutionary subject when a moment of revolution actually happens okay. um, and i th- you know and the you know it's probably not would not have occurred to the situationist as being incidental that when the moment of revolution happens in in france it's the communist party who says to the working class who has taken over the factories who has become ungovernable and has driven Charles de Gaulle out of the country it's the communist party that says all right let's have an election go back to work because they basically have like completely lost their capacity to like conceive of a of a of a future right to like to like 
to theorize the future and make it manifest in their actions. So the situationists were revolting against that, just as much as they were revolting against um, like a society which was like formally dominated, you know, by by imagery, uh, images of participation instead of real participation. It was also its its uh, its opponents in the formal communist movement were equally dominated by the spectacular division of tasks, right? Where the you know the average individual proletarian has no subjectivity, has no role. So. For us, immediately, what do we do with this information? I mean, it's it's super easy to read the, the Society of the Spectacle and be like, oh yeah, man, like, Instagram is the spectacle, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong, you know? The, uh, the, the Pinterest board lifestyle that is captured in image form and displayed for everyone to see and monetized is absolutely a perfect example of the spectacle but that's not very useful other than to just diagnose diagnosing is good you know what do we do to cure it i mean the, obviously the answer is overthrow capitalism right <laughs> but yeah just like how do you do that <laughs> i mean i think so this is where i'd probably depart somewhat from you know the situs as they call themselves uh they probably said the cities yeah it's probably <laughs> But, you know, like they didn't see themselves as being like a new organization because the working class had organizations that had unions and it had parties. They, they saw their role as being like uh, to organize the detonation rather than to represent the struggle. You know, so they, that's the way that those are the that's the way they put it is that their intention was to organize the detonation and then, you know, dissolve themselves into the festival of revolt. Uh, so that like sort of insurrectionism in, then. Very much so. Um, but they also are taking for granted that at the time, um, you know, that working class organization is already an established fact. That, like, the conception of socialism is already a popular one. That, like, especially in France, but all over Europe, there's a huge sections of the working class organized in left-wing parties and trade unions that have traditions of militancy and a conception of, of society in the way that they would like it to exist and that their their principal obstacles in the moment um, was this this separation of tasks and this reduction of the mass to you know the role of spectators. So they're talking about an era which is utterly different than the one we live in, right? Um, they weren't like opponents necessarily of the party form. They were opponents of the bureaucratization of party life. Um, so even though they weren't like members of you know the the PSAF. Um, but they weren't because they would have been expelled, right? Like, could you imagine any of these people writing this stuff? Uh, <laughs> you know, writing like victory to the Hungarian revolt, right? Or the or the Prague revolt at a time when the Communist Party is like, every, every editorial is about like how actually those revolts are fascist. Right. Um, but, you know, like uh, there's a, there's an essay that, uh, what is it called? It's called... <laughs> Uh, report on the construction of situations and on the international situations, tendencies, conditions of organization and action. Um, Destined to go down in history is one of the great memorable titles. They write that uh, in their immediate tasks is to uh, call attention among the workers' parties and the extremist tendencies within those parties of the need to undertake an effective ideological action in order to combat the emotional influence of advanced capitalist methods of propaganda. So, you know, like, they see their audience as being 
socialist workers. I don't think that they intended to counterpose themselves to the movement as a whole, right? Just like in the Communist Manifesto, they say that the communists are, don't have any interest apart from the workers' movement as a whole. They saw their audience as socialist workers, workers who were organized in parties, organized in unions. Right. Um, those are the things we're trying to recompose today. So I wouldn't say that um, the kind of thought and practice of the situation of some of the 60s and early 70s is like the new philosophy of proletarian revolution, right? It's what they're dealing with is a, is a bureaucratized workers movement that um, for better and for worse, we uh, don't have uh, right now. I mean, we kind of do, but it's a, it's a different moment. Uh, I think what's useful to kind of like, I don't know, salvage and they torn from, from their experience is this like obsessive reassertion of the subjectivity of the worker as an individual and the working class as a collective entity as part and parcel to the socialist project. That there is no socialism, which is not a socialism of participation, right? There's no socialism without Soviets, without workers' councils, without a, without the class stepping onto the stage of world history, becoming fit to rule, and all of those things which we um, we associate with like the the golden age of, of of communism, of Marxism, and that keep kind of, we keep kind of sidestepping throughout history and pay, pay like lip service to, you know, in this kind of representative form, uh, but not in this participatory way. So like if we're going to construct a socialism which is worthwhile in the few years left we have as a species, it's going to be one which looks more like what the situationists wanted than what the um, bureaucrats running the Communist Party-dominated trade unions would have wanted. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I just, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I don't get it. Because <laughs> I just, I, I'm i not sure if I really understand what's actually useful about it. Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I think that, uh, so, like, there's a there's another May 68 slogan that our ideas are in everyone's heads. And I think that um, a lot of your uh, critiques of the like super narrow-minded and dogmatic and bureaucratic left that you have uh, attempted to escape from uh, in in very recent part of your own life, I would say is is an indication of actually just how much you do get it. You might have different language to talk about the same phenomena, but this is like the philosophy of trying to like extrapolate from that experience to an analysis of the way in which that experience is conditioned by society so that like if you're not consciously trying to build a culture internally um which is participatory and not participate not like a like in the sense of being like a consensus based but participatory in the sense that like your presence here would is is felt and your your absence would be noted because you have a role to play and that you you draw some meaning in life not out of not in a not in a religious way, in a Catholic way, right? Of like, you show up and you feel atonement and you do the fucking catechism and you move on. But in a Protestant way, in that you have a personal relationship with the struggle, right? That you draw meaning from the collective experience of your comrades. It's the reassertion of that as an ethic, not just for an individual, but how it might play out in organizational form, in theory and practice. That's why it's... 
that's what it's about. And I actually think that you explicitly agree and maybe just aren't aware even of where your agreement comes from because it's been theorized by people who speak French several decades ago. All I know now is that I don't like situationism anymore because you said that it was Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm out. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more like uh, Luciferianism. Actually. <laughs> Kevin's because, back in. <laughs> I mean, in it, no, the, it's like if the dichotomy is is a uh, it's about it's it's the same as the like it's the communism of the left opposition, it's the socialism of George Orwell, it's the it's the way in which Marx and Engels talk about like the individual is like truly realized in, you know, kind of like communion with other people or whatever. It's like erasing the like false dichotomy between your subjectivity as a proletarian and the subjectivity of the class as a whole, you know, because the politics of Stalinism and of social democracy and of all of the various top down bureaucratic socialisms are, um, you know, like we're going to build a society which addresses needs and then somehow that will develop a population which is capable of taking history into its hands. And the situation is, you know, basically shouting into the void, hoping some people would hear that, like, if your politics are not trying to construct that in everyday life, you're not going to get there. Um, th there's no there is no rigid separation between the emancipation of the proletariat and the act of, of emancipating the proletariat itself. That like, it's it's in making the revolution that we, be, we sort of shake off the muck of ages and become fit to rule, right? But it's in the, in the preparation for making the revolution that we self-organize. And if our self-organize, self, if our methods of self-organization don't have that in mind that aren't like intentionally trying to reassert and reestablish subjectivity, then we will, we'll miss the opportunity. And uh, we've seen, you know, the 20th century play out as a series of missed opportunities. And it's our own organizations which have played these critical roles and come up so short. And it's not because people have necessarily bad intentions. Uh, it's that we haven't fully theorized how much internally, psychologically, collectively, we operate as though we don't believe that there is a future. Uh, and I don't mean like in the, pes in, a, in the sense of being pessimistic, but that in that we can't conceive of a world which isn't completely informed by capitalist social relations. So that even our socialism is capitalistic.